Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com slash fool. That's quickenloans.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It is the end of February. It is time for your mailbag. Got a number of excellent items as usual. Thank you, correspondents all. It's a pleasure to receive notes from not just around the country, but around the world. I'll be sharing at least one of those once again this month. And uh, great to hear from some people who very regularly hear every one of these podcasts. I'm deeply flattered by anybody who would have listened to 50 or more Rule Breaker podcasts. If my accounting is right, this is number 87, but who's keeping score? Uh, So, if you've listened to 50 or more, awesome. But of course, I always love hearing from somebody who's just come across Rule Breaker Investing for the first time in the past month. And I always appreciate you letting your friends know about what we're doing here and getting as many people around you started investing as possible. I have at least one note to share this month from somebody who's listened to them all but had never really written in and had quite a lot to say. And I want to share a few of his thoughts and ideas as well. Now, before we get started with our seven mailbag items this month, let's just look back briefly over the month that has been for this podcast. So, we kicked off the first week of February with our Campfire Stories Volume 2. You may remember my fourth grade Hershey bar story, or maybe serving as a bat boy. Or maybe my trip to Syria got some great notes about that. Then the week after that, it was five stocks to feed the bear one year later. And then last week, I went over five stocks the world needs right now. And just to recall those five Alphabet, I keep saying Google too often Alphabet, The New York Times, Tesla, Alchemies, and Fact Set Research Systems. That's what I presented you with last week. So now we've looked back. Now let's proceed forward. Mailbag item number one. Mailbag item number one comes from James Chen. James wrote an email. He said, What a fascinating mailbag episode, re- referring to last month's. But did you really just admit on air that you don't finish reading your business books? What's going to happen to all the students listening to your podcast? Hashtag truly a rule breaker at heart. Smiley face. So, James, let me mention thank you. You have a second, more important question I'll be addressing in a sec. But I do want to make it clear that I I have not finished a lot of business books, but I have finished some business books, and I have finished many books over the course of my 50 years or so. It's more that my modus operandi when it comes to business books is typically not to finish them unless I feel highly compelled. Now, I'm going to be spending a little time at the end of this week's podcast laying out a book list, which is one of the questions, kind of related to yours, James, about what books I think are great to read for investors. And so I'll be speaking, and I'll be presenting a number of business books, all of which I think I have fully read. All right. Your more serious question was as you, you listened, you said, James, to the responses to my biggest losers episode that was in January. It occurred to me, James writes, that the biggest regret I have when it comes to investing is not that any one of my stocks dropped significantly, but that I failed to purchase a great stock. So, in a sense, 
He goes on, I think the biggest losers may actually be those great stocks that you failed to pick, not ones that lost 80 to 90% of their value. I wonder if you have examples in the 20 years you've been doing this where you passed on a stock that later turned out to be a huge winner. So, James, you are very foolish, sir. Capital F. This is such a key and, I think, contrary point for many people, because, indeed, most of us, it seems, live in fear of losing something big, investing and watching 80% of our money go away. I've done it a number of times. I hate it when it happens, but I've been willing to shoulder that because of the math that you're referencing, that you're realizing. So, my classic example in Motley Fool Stock Advisor was Martha Stewart's stock. So, back in the day when Martha Stewart was really out of favor, do you remember the insider trading scandal surrounding Martha? Uh, personally, which affected her public company at the time, the stock had dropped dramatically. And I decided that this was a more supple business, a more resilient business than the world was giving it credit for. And I recommended Martha Stewart's stock for Motley Fool Stock Advisor. This is 10 years ago or so, actually more than 10 years ago now. And about a year later, the stock had bounced back about 50%. And there was a fun article, I think it was written by Mark Hulbert. I think it may have been printed in either the Wall Street Journal or maybe Fortune, which mentioned that The Motley Fool was the only service that was recommending Martha Stewart's stock, which I thought was kind of awesome that nobody else liked her stock. And we'd found her stock you know, left for dead and had made pretty good money on it. Uh, but then the stock began to sink a little bit, and I decided I wanted to lock in that gain because it was such a contrary thing to recommend Martha Stewart in the face of all the allegations, all the negativity. And so I wanted to lock down for history and for stock advisor members that we were going to make a profit there. So I'm going to say that I'm making the numbers up a little bit. This is off the top of my head, but I recommend the stock around $6 a share. It was about nine at that point, and we sold. And over the course of the next one year, the stock went to about 35, which caused me to write an introduction to a future issue in which I pointed out that that was the single biggest loser, the single worst investment decision that I had made yet for Motley Fool Stock Advisor. Yes, as I've talked about before on Rule Breaker Investing, I had recommended Krispy Kreme and the stock, my worst pick ever in Stock Advisor at the time, had lost about 90% of its value. And that sounds really bad, but James Chen, you understand this, don't you? That you can only lose 100% on a really, really bad pick, but you can make multiples of 100% with a winner. But if you don't buy that winner, or if you sell that winner in advance, in Martha's case, of a stock that would go from 9 to 35, simple math here, my fellow fools, just do the numbers in a spreadsheet or with a yellow legal pad. The money that you miss, the opportunity cost of selling or missing a great stock far exceeds your worst ever loser, assuming you didn't keep adding to something all the way down, which we don't do as rule breakers. So, James, really appreciate your point. You're absolutely right. And I gave you my Martha Stewart example as my kind of classic example. Another story I won't tell right now, but is the story about how I was going to recommend Yahoo way back in the day, uh, in the late 1990s, but I decided at the time it was overvalued and I wanted it to drop to a, a number a few dollars below where it was trading on the market that week. I never did, and the stock would go up more than 100 times in value over the succeeding 10 years. And I always look back on that and said, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. I'm never not going to invest in a company that, at the time, this was when Yahoo would shortly become king of the world, I'm not going to let a few extra dollars on the price per share prevent me from becoming a part owner of a very promising business. So, James, thank you for 
elucidating that, giving me an opportunity just to remind my fellow fools of these points. Mailbag item number two. This one comes from Vikas Patel. Vikas, you wrote, I listened to your RBI podcasts from episode one. Thank you very much, sir. I've learned a lot about investment in stocks. I actually bought Illumina, Planet Fitness, and Carter's, your recommendations through the podcasts. The question I have, Vikas writes, is how does buying stocks benefit the company? After IPO, after a company comes public, the initial public offering stocks are just traded in the market, and the profits and losses are for those who buy and sell those stocks. Does the company gain anything if the price goes up? Well, first of all, Great question. It's a very natural thing. You're right. When a company initially comes public, it raises a lot of capital. That's why it comes public. It sells a part of its lemonade stand to you and me, public market investors, and the money we pay in to take a part ownership of the company goes right to the company to finance it. That's why we have initial public offers. That's why we have a stock market. But while it is true from then on, for the most part, it's just you and me trading shares with each other, some people on the buy side, some people on the sell side, uh, whether the stock goes up or down, you'd think most of the work's been done for the company, but in fact, that's not quite the full story, is it, Vikas? Because think about what companies can do with a rising stock. So often, when a stock goes up, you'll notice a company will do what's called a secondary offering at some point. That's when it goes back to the market and says, you know what, we want to raise more money. It's like they IPO a second time, except that it's not an I in the IPO anymore. It's just a public offering. It's an SPO. People don't talk about secondary public offerings as often, but yeah, a lot of companies do this. Tesla did it. A number of other companies have done it. After a successful IPO, maybe a few years later, they'll say, hey, our stock's up. We're really going to benefit from this. We're going to sell a million shares at this new higher price, and they're going to raise even more money sometimes than they did in their IPO. So certainly, companies benefit in that way if they want to go back to the market. And if a stock is down, it makes it painful or difficult for a company to go back to market. Um, another example of how stocks benefit uh, companies, even though it's just you and me buying and selling them, is giving shares to employees to entice employees. Um, stock options, the premise that the stock will go up over time, enables companies to hire and retain key talent with the promise of a good stock. A third thing off the top of my head, Certainly, a lot of companies use their shares to acquire other companies. So, if a company has a strategy to be acquisitive, if its share price is high and doing well, it spends fewer shares in order to buy out another company when it pays using some of its stock to acquire a company. So, there are a lot of reasons why shares continue to matter a lot. Um, certainly, a lot of executive bonus packages can be tied to stock over time. There are a lot of reasons because that it's important how a stock does after the IPO. Mailbag item number three. This one comes from Balal Rasul. Balal begins, I am a 19-year-old dyslexic student from Montreal, Canada. I would like to thank you and the Motley Fool team for everything you offer by reading articles and listening to all the Motley Fool podcasts. I found a passion for investing. I would like to thank you for everything. By listening to your podcast, I found a mentor, someone I can look up to and learn from. Nowadays, I'm learning about how to evaluate a stock to help increase my wealth and someday, hopefully, achieve my dream of creating a car company and to open a hospital in my native country, Pakistan to offer free healthcare to the poor. Not only did I found this passion for investing thanks to The Motley Fool, but by listening to one episode of the Industry Focus podcast, one of our wonderful Motley Fool podcasts. I hope you enjoy Industry Focus. If you haven't listened to it, 
It comes out with a new podcast every day of the week on a different industry that repeats every week, and it's a wonderful podcast. Clearly, Bilal has enjoyed it because he said, I started to write as a consequence of one episode of Industry Focus, and now I have a small blog, he concludes, with up to 100 visitors a month. Not a lot, but better than nothing. I'm just reading that to share it. I love notes like that. I am really excited to think, Bilal, that you have been inspired by our work, not this podcast per se, not any single Motley Fool podcast, maybe just by the work and the purpose of our company to take charge in your life and to dream it and maybe one day build it. One of my favorite people in business, Roy Spence, who is one of the founders of GSDNM, a consulting and marketing company in Austin, Texas, Roy Spence said, hey, life can be as simple as this, dream it and build it. And Bilal, it sounds like that's what you're in the process of doing. And if we've assisted in that, if we've inspired you, if we can help guide you in some ways, in the end, we're a small part of your story. There's going to be a lot on you to do either of those two big things, to start a car company or to start a hospital. But to think that at the age of 19, from your perch in Montreal, that you are preparing yourself and thinking about those things and realizing how wealth will play a key role in your ability or not to do that, is all to your credit. Fool on. Mailbag item number four. This one comes from Clifford Cada. Clifford said, Hi, who is the author or what book were you referencing when you said it was way easier to predict the future back then? Where you could say, 100 years forward, people will still be farming, but now you can only reliably predict up to two years out. Well, I'm going to briefly retell that story because I did it a while ago, and we have a lot of new listeners. I think a lot of people may not have heard that one. So, Clifford, you're giving me an opportunity to uh, retell the story. Before I do, I'm going to mention this is from Ray Kurzweil. Ray is a futurist uh, of repute. He's been doing it for decades. He's written a number of books. He works for Google. Uh, You can definitely Google Ray Kurzweil and see a lot more about Ray. And there's no particular book that I'm referencing When I tell the story, I'm telling my own personal experience of seeing Ray present at a conference for investors about seven or eight years ago. And I was inspired by his talk to think deeper about where our world is headed, and it's always colored how I think about picking stocks ever since. So here's the story again. And I want to make it clear, this is my riffing on Ray's story. Ray would tell the story better. I probably am getting things wrong. This is a little bit with my own spin and how I think about it, because I kind of pulled from a futurist a concept, and then I've applied it to investing on our behalf ever since. So, here's how it goes. It starts by saying that if you and I were living in ancient Egypt, we would have done a pretty good job back then predicting, let's just call it the year 2700 BC, we would have made a pretty good prediction if asked as to what our kids, or really our grandkids, would be doing. We'd be saying, you know, I think in a hundred years, assuming we could all live that long, that my grandchildren will be farming. I am farming. I believe that they will be farming. Uh, We'll hope that the Nile River will continue to overrun its banks in the spring. And I predict, you would say, that my grandkids will be farmers. And you would have been pretty accurate in your prediction. Now, as we fast forward over time... What's happened is that more innovation has happened, lots lots of human invention, inventiveness has taken root, and so the ability to predict what's going to happen for our grandkids, or a little narrower, our kids, or 
a little narrower, our own future, or even more narrow these days, perhaps just five years ahead or maybe just three years ahead, our ability to predict that has dramatically declined. The world has become more and more unpredictable. In fact, this is really where it's no longer Ray and it's my own spin. If you want to have some fun, go to YouTube and Google the 1993 AT&T ads. Here's how they would run. You may remember if you were around watching television in 1993, these ads. AT&T would start by saying things like, how would you like to conduct your next business meeting at the beach? And it would show a beautiful image of somebody with something that looked crazy at the time. Video conferencing, somebody sitting at the beach and uh, calling in on a business meeting, video conferencing. Or, or the ad might go, how would you like to drive across the country without a map? And you saw something, this crazy notion at the time, that global positioning satellite GPS system in a car allowing you or me, it seemed preposterous to drive without physical maps. And the humor, uh, in retrospect, is that the punchline was always, you will, you will do these things, and AT&T will bring it to you. But what's funny about it is that in no case, really, was AT&T the company that did it. It might have been Garmin or Google Maps or it might have been any number of video conferencing companies. So, all of these technologies came along. But the reason I'm mentioning this is that in 1993, it took about 10 years for those things to happen. So, if I were to go back a little bit in time, the 1970s, 80s, when I was growing up, I think you could predict about 15 years ahead or so, 15 or 20 years, cable television was just coming online, satellites were playing a bigger role, you could make some predictions there. By 1993, I think it got down to about 10 years. By 2008 or 9, as the iPhone showed up, or the iPad showed up a few years later, a lot of people didn't even think the iPad would ever take hold. The whole concept of tablets, people thought, was a crazy notion. Or the idea of really eBay, that people would send stuff to each other online. Or how about Uber? that this would be a big business. These things have become increasingly hard to predict, and part of it is just that so many people are innovating at this point, and there's a lot of global collaboration. There's a lot of innovation happening, and so we're really not sure what's going to happen next. And what Ray Kurzweil has said is that that window of predictability has been narrowing from, let's say, 100 years back in ancient Egypt up to maybe down to just maybe two years today. And Kurzweil might even suggest that it's going to go from two years to one year to six months, to three months, to one month, to three days, to one day, to maybe one time when you literally don't even know what's going to happen in the next hour. It's And he would call that the singularity. He's a lot more thinking around the singularity, take it or leave it. But Ray's a really interesting guy. And for me, the here's the big takeaway for us as investors. Looking backwards and using financial statements and backward-looking valuation metrics in order to try to gauge whether or not you should buy a stock. While that might have been useful back in Benjamin Graham's day or a lot of Buffett's lifetime, I don't think it's that relevant anymore. In fact, I think what's far more relevant is who can innovate and who can innovate with great and global impact, who can add real value, which companies have that ability. And the markets have a hard time for seeing that. So those companies usually look overvalued because they're trading at a high multiple or they have no profits, as Amazon did not once back in the day. And that's why we as rule breakers, by embracing those kinds of companies, we stand, I think, a greater chance of continuing to beat the market together than by looking backwards and using our discounted cash flow forecast trying to figure out how to value companies. 
So Clifford, I took a little extra time to answer your question because I wanted to tell that story and I wanted to challenge your thinking and my thinking together about where the future is headed in a world, I think, of accelerating technological gains. Very interesting and very compelling time that we're living in. All right, before I go to mailbag item number five, support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust and who has your best interests in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, go completely online at quickenloans.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for generously supporting so many Motley Fool podcasts. Okay, three more mailbag items. Next one, number five, comes from Christopher Qualls. Christopher is a Master of Social Work candidate at Baylor University. Hello, David. It's been my pleasure to listen to RBI podcasts for over a year now and to follow you in the fool for much longer. I've intended to write you now for quite a while, but today is the day. Since I've not previously made time to address you and all the varying talking points I have, this may unfortunately be a long message. And Christopher, it was. It was a pleasure to read. You don't have to say, unfortunately, I will definitely not be sharing all of it here on Rule Breaker Investing, but there are a number of points I want to address. So let's take them in order. First, I want to start with what I'll call your superhero investor origin story. I love it when people share their stories of how they came to investing or business or business thinking. And I loved yours. So here's how it went. First, you said, I was listening last year when you named your five stocks for the teeth of the bear market. I usually place a high value on your suggestions since you consistently outpace the market considerably. Besides your noteworthy performance, I am a young guy, 24. My first intro to investing was in an Arby's when I was about 10 years old. Using me and the names of my friends at the time, my father walked me through a hypothetical lemonade stand business, explaining to me the finer points of how stocks would work in that situation. At the end of his lesson, not only was I enlightened, but a patron at a neighboring table came over to thank my dad. She said she was in business school at the local university, and his explanation was one of the best she'd ever heard, clarifying and simplifying much more than any of her professors had. Well, at 10 years old, Christopher writes, I became interested in investing largely because of the groundwork laid by my father, who was even then a follower of The Motley Fool. Well, pause, because I just want to say, I love your superhero, what I call your superhero investor origin story. We all have them, by the way. Well, we all have that moment where we awakened, we switched on, we realized this is a great thing to do to save money, to invest that money. It's really going to be profound, not just for my future, but for those tied to me. And Christopher, I can certainly, I know you know this, I can certainly identify with you having a great dad as I did, who taught us and laid it out. And now, as a father, I can also see it from the other side, trying to do that for kids in my life and not just my own. So, love it. Thank you. Okay. I have two more parts that I want to share from your epic note. The next one I'm going to entitle Planet Fitness. This is my own subtitle. That's with a question mark. Planet Fitness. So, you wrote, with such a high regard for your opinion and suggestion, I elected solidly not to invest in Planet Fitness 
at the time. This was one of my five stocks to feed the bear. It was painful for me to hear recently then that they had appreciated approximately 60%. I believe that's what you mentioned in the recent podcast episode. However, I do not regret my decision. So here's Christopher's viewpoint here. I believe Planet Fitness has perhaps engaged in some discriminatory practices in their efforts to be inclusive. That's pretty ironic. As you said, Christopher goes on, quotes, no lunks is their mantra. The idea here is that Planet Fitness aims to be a welcoming place to the more common or normal customers interested in fitness. Their goal is to be a place welcoming to average Joes. I am an average Joe myself, Christopher writes. I appreciate exercise. I visit the gym for strength training a few times per week. I run somewhat regularly. By the way, Christopher, you're clearly in better shape than I am. But I do not lift a lot, nor do I impose an intimidating presence. I am, however, somewhat weary of Planet Fitness's goals. Their lunk alarm and practice of banning members who grunt causes concern. It seems that in an effort to appeal to one segment of the population, Planet Fitness has turned to shaming and ostracizing another. I am not a lunk, Christopher concludes, but I can absolutely feel empathy for those individuals who take their physicality and health this seriously and who are shamed by certain gyms in return. As such, I cannot support Planet Fitness. All right, my brief reflection there. I think that's great. One of my watchwords, one of my taglines, one of my most frequently repeated mantras, a line of my own making, make your portfolio reflect your best hopes for our future. And Christopher, your view of the future is you don't like some of how Planet Fitness does its business, and I completely can respect that. I disagree in that primarily the purpose of this company is to democratize fitness. However, um, while I've certainly seen some headlines about how they are discriminating sometimes and kicking people out who are making too much noise, I do think that a lot of companies that face consumers, a lot of retail businesses and others, you're going to hear these headlines from time to time, how one store or one manager has treated has treated somebody. And if it's a company of renown, like, let's say, Starbucks or Planet Fitness, it'll get a bad rap or a bad headline or two. Uh, but I don't think that Planet Fitness's main goal, if you just play it forward, I think what it does is good for the world, to make more and more people feel like they should exercise. But as I conclude this point, Christopher, I want you to know I absolutely support your decision. Because for you, it's the right thing. You know that great line from Voltaire, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it? One of my favorite lines, that's Voltaire. Um, I feel the same way for investing. I might disagree with whether you like this stock or that one, but I absolutely will support your decision to be true to yourself. Make your portfolio reflect your best hopes for our future. Well, I'm going to start running out of time if I run, read too much more of this note. So I just want to conclude with what you said at the end, which was in closing, allow me to say I'm a proud fool. I listen to several of the podcasts you all produce, subscribe to a service or two. And I want to thank you very much for that, by the way, Christopher. Not everybody at the age of 24 is actually subscribed to a Motley Fool service, but I love hearing it when people are. Thank you. And you've read one of our published works. You say you've taught me much in the way of investing as well as assisted me in my portfolio and growing. Thank you for your meaningful work and rule-breaking insights. The Foolish Perspective is one I try to employ in my professional work as a community-focused program developer. Thank you and all the fools. And what I want to say in closing, one of my favorite lines, if you want some insight into how I think or how I roll in life, I've often said, I'm after the good opinion of good people. I think that's a good way to go through life. A lot of other people may have even better motivations, but for me, 
I'm after the good opinion of good people. Christopher, I'll just say it's a pleasure to have yours. All right, two more, including at close, a suggested reading list. Mailbag item number six. This one comes as an email from Kevin Fisher. Dear David, I wanted to write you and tell you how much you and The Motley Fool have inspired me. I first came across The Motley Fool in 2015 when I wanted to get into stocks but had no idea how to start. I did a Google search of something along the lines of, quote, best stocks to buy in 2015. I'm going to pause this read for a quick sec. Spend an extra few minutes just, what the heck, Googling best stocks to buy in 2017. And I'm happy to say The Motley Fool is there with a few results on the first page of Google results. So I guess we're doing our job from an internet search engine optimization standpoint. However, I'm disappointed to note that Kiplinger has um, the top two. They have 27 best stocks for 2017. Wow, that's a lot of stocks. And their second one, the second biggest hit here, is eight stocks to buy now for 2017. So apparently, we're not winning the search engine optimization race this year as well as we were in 2015. But maybe we've moved on. I don't know. Or maybe we need to pick more stocks. Okay, now return to text. You wrote, The first website that appeared was, of course, The Motley Fool. When I first saw it, I just thought, eh, it was one of those websites that claimed to have the secret to success and really just wants me to pay for some advice that won't work. However, I found that's not the case after being a loyal listener of all of the podcasts The Motley Fool provides and reading the excellent articles on Fool.com. I'm proud to call myself a foolish investor. I learned so much just from the free information that The Motley Fool provides, which inspired me to sign up for Rule Breakers. The Motley Fool has a variety of people from all over with all different types of interests and personalities, which gives us information from all different angles, making us better investors every day. I want to pause there, just double underline that. You know, we've often described ourselves as investors helping investors beat the market. That's really the heart of what we do with our community at The Fool. And really, that's what I'm doing here with this podcast. My opportunity to share what I have, try to help you beat the market, but why do we do mailbag? Why do I so much value what people tweet us over Twitter uh, or drop notes on our boards? Because you make me smarter, you make us smarter by sharing information of what you're seeing in the world at large and me sharing it back. I think there's a wonderful cycle, and it's not on a 2D plane. It's, it's, it's circling back and forth, but it's going upward. It's actually a gyre that goes upwards because we're helping each other out. Investors helping investors beat the market. Kevin, I'm delighted to see you get that. Let me just share two more quick things from Kevin's note. He said, the biggest thing you've shown me is that buying stock isn't necessarily spending, but rather holding your money in the form of a company that you will get back once you sell it. This allowed me to take the leap from being afraid to put in $100 to putting in however much I need to take a position in a company that I think is a great buy. Another huge thing you taught me is that keeping money in a savings account is not a great way to grow your money. In just one month of having one stock, I tripled the amount I made in interest last year. Now, interest being as low as it is, I'm not even sure Kevin made that much more than about 10 bucks because I'm not sure that's how much my savings account or anything like it pays me these days. But I love, thank you for the compliment. I get it. Kevin, you want to say, and this is what I love, I'm happy to say I'm not even 21 years old and I already have a diversified portfolio with nine stocks and I just started a 401k through my job. I could write more things that the Molly Fools taught me, but this email will be 20 pages long. Goes on from there with a PS that says, I also just got my girlfriend to start investing too because she saw how much I was into stocks and how it's a great and fun way to make money. Well, let me say after the conclusion of another lovely note first of all, I feel like I've almost overshared beautiful expressions of positivity this week. Um, 
I love to share the stories out, um, but I want to say two things about it. The first is that we're all living through a great market right now. And so I do hope that even if the stock market had been bad in the last year, we would have the same positive sentiments. I trust we probably wouldn't. I'm sure we'd have some notes of disappointment, people saying, I just listened to you and I've lost money. And while I certainly acknowledge that's going to happen, because one year in every three, the stock market traditionally loses value. Therefore, new people to rule breaker investing that year will look back and say, I listened to the podcast, but I've lost money. So I just hope that you'll remember we've been living through a great market and we're all going to have enjoyed the process of starting, but be resilient. When the market sells off, whenever it does this year, three years from now, whenever, I hope that you will feel just as positively about your your attempts. And I love hearing from people who are young and getting started, which I really highlighted this week. Okay, mailbag item number seven. In closing, as I mentioned, time to talk books. This one's from Spencer Olson at Olson SPO. Spencer writes, What are your top recommended investing books, including yours, for foolish investors? So let me give you a list of books. If you are jogging right now or if you are driving, it's not going to be a great experience. However, I hope you'll flag that we did this and that you can go back and listen to this portion to get some good ideas for books. So, really quickly, I have about four books or so in four categories, and they're in order this way. The first is books about investing. I'm going to give you the few that I've read. That's right, the few that I've read. I've read One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, an outstanding book. I've read Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits by Philip Fisher, an outstanding book. I've read How to Make Money in Stocks by William O'Neill, in some ways among the best and the worst books that I've ever read on investing. The best of it, O'Neill teaches us, Look for winners. Winners keep on winning. When stocks hit new highs, O'Neill contrarily said 20 years ago, when stocks hit new highs, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. That's what I learned from William O'Neill. Why is some of it really bad? He's really into market timing. He believes you should sell stocks whenever they're down 7%. Um, So there's a lot of trading mentality in that book. But I'll tell you, O'Neill at his best is brilliant. And then among our books, I would recommend Rule Breakers and Rule Makers, probably the book I enjoyed writing most of all. Uh, It is a 1998-99 kind of edition these days, so you're reading something 15 years old. But guess what? Of all these books, it's the youngest. And I think what I want to point out about investing books is I haven't read a lot of them. In fact, I tried to read through once The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, and I kind of got bored about halfway through. So, I believe that one of the best ways to make yourself a better investor is not by reading too many investing books, but rather books in these three other categories that I'll now quickly cover. The first is, I love reading books about our culture, the time in which we're living. And three books that come to mind for me that I've enjoyed, they're completely different with different purposes. The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley, where he really takes a tour of all of human history and points out the importance of trade, of collaboration, of commerce. Uh, It's a tremendous book. I love the book The Art of Game Design by Jesse Schell. I love games. I think anybody who's listened to Rule Breaker Investing knows that. And this is a brilliant book, not just about games, but about design and the principles of design and what works. Jesse Schell's book, The Art of Game Design. And then Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. Tremendous book about behavioral economics and how irrational our minds are. Those are just three wonderful books. By no means the top three are definitive. They came to mind because they're books about you and me, how we think, and the age in which we're living. And I believe that is more instructive for most of us as investors than a fourth or fifth or sixth investing book. 
my next category, my third category after investing books and culture books, comes business and innovation books. And yes, as I mentioned earlier at the top of this week's podcast, I have actually read these books. Little Bets, How Breakthrough Ideas Emerge by Peter Sims is a tremendous book about innovation and how to innovate. Uh, Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey and Raj Sisodia is a tremendous book giving you a framework to think through how capitalism works at its best and how crony capitalism doesn't work at its worst. And then any book by Seth Godin. I'm a big Seth Godin fan. If you've ever heard of him, you probably already know he writes about a book a year. He's a brilliant marketing mind, a very fine and terse writer. And um, I've really enjoyed Seth's work over time. I'll also mention Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. Danny Meyer was on Rule Breaker Investing during Entrepreneur Month, November, just a few months ago. And his book, Setting the Table, which I will admit I've not actually finished that one, is an excellent book if you're an entrepreneur and trying to create a wonderful customer experience, wonderful brand loyalty. So again, why do I like those books as an investor? Because I believe with Warren Buffett, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman, and I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor. So the more you and I can read and think about business, it will help our lens and our stock selection as investors. And then finally, the fourth group, and I've read a lot of books in this category as well, I'll just highlight three, I'll call business culture. As a stock picker, as an investor, by definition, I'm acting for the long term. Therefore, the culture of the companies that you and I invest in when we're investing for three, five, seven, 15 years is profoundly important. In fact, I believe the culture of companies that we're investing in is far more important than whatever the price to earnings ratio is this particular quarter or what the price to sales ratio was last year. It's really critical. Think about it. The culture is going to be what creates success or failure. Can companies innovate? So, books in this area, I think, have really sharpened my own view of other companies as well as my own. Three books that come to mind here to close Mavericks at Work by Bill Taylor and Polly Labar, a wonderful book presenting different cultures and how they work, supporting, in some cases, some public companies. Uh, Predictable Success by Les McEwen. Predictable Success helps me and helps you read the different lifestyle stages of companies. Might be your own company or organization, or might be a stock that you're studying. It helps you view in that smart lens of predictable success where a company is. And then finally, The Why of Work by David and Wendy Ulrich. Tremendous book about purpose in the workplace. And something that, again, will benefit you not just as an investor, but as a person, as a citizen going forward. So, thank you, Spencer Olson, for your question about what books I would recommend. As you can see, for investing books, most of my investing thinking does not come from investing books, although I appreciate a few and am deeply grateful for them, but rather from books about our world and our culture, business and innovation, and the culture of organizations. All right. Well, this is a lot of fun to do this mailbag. I think this was a little bit of a longer mailbag, but I had a lot of good stuff to share. And I thank you all for writing in. I'm going to ask you in advance of next week's podcast to write in again, because next week I'm going to continue our series, our sometime series on mental tips and tricks and life hacks. It's going to be volume three. We've done this twice before. I would love to hear from you. Do you have a good mental tip or trick or life hack? that you'd like me to consider sharing back out to our fellow fools next week on Rule Breaker Investing. Just tag it at RBI Podcast on Twitter or drop us an email at rbi at fool.com. And I'll look forward to sharing a few of yours right along with mine. So, Mental Tips and Tricks, Volume 3, next week to start March.
And in closing, you can check out past episodes of Rule Breaker Investing and really all of the Motley Fool's podcasts at our podcast center. Just go to podcasts.fool.com. And while you're there, you can check out our subscription services. A new issue of the Rule Breakers service comes out with two new stock recommendations from me the last Wednesday of every month. You can check it out by going to the Podcast Center and scrolling to the bottom of that page. That's podcasts.fool.com. Thanks, fools. Talk to you next week. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.